Father, we're grateful to you for all the marvelous ways that you've blessed us and continue to bless us. And God, we ask that in the next few moments, you would allow us to see from your word a little bit more about you, who you are, what you're like. We pray that as a result, we will reflect you better and we'd be more like you. And that others would see that difference. And that our good works would be salt and light to those who need the hope of the gospel. And so we pray that this would be a time that does that for us. For your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of reminder, for those of you who perhaps slipped in late, uh, we will take a few minutes toward the end of the message today to, uh, to take questions. If you have questions about the, the subject that we're talking about today, the Holy Spirit, big, wide-open topic, I'm going to have a particular focus, uh, but you may have questions, and you can do that by raising your hand when we have that time. Uh, if you raise your hand in the middle of the sermon, I'm probably going to ignore it. But when I open it up, then, uh, then, then I won't ignore it. Or you can text the question, by using the phone number that's in the lower left corner of the back of the bulletin, just text that number and then it'll be forwarded to me and then I should get it up here uh, when we get to that time. So we're moving through the Apostles' Creed and we're going to have it up on the screen as we've been doing the past several weeks. We're going to read together aloud the portion of the Creed that we've uh, covered so far through the messages uh, and then in the font that's not green, the font that's white, I'll read that to you because that's the piece that we're going to cover today. Before we do that, if you need a Bible, please lift your hand up. I want to bring you the Bibles uh, so you can follow us along. Um, I want to make sure that you can see what we are looking at there in the text in Scripture. Uh, but if you would uh, stand and join me as we read the green portion of the Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I'll read this to you. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. So we move to that creed. It's pretty sparse, meaning there's not a lot of details because the creed is so early. Later confessions and creeds will begin to unpack more things about the Trinity and different aspects of these doctrinal pieces that we see here. Uh, but the Holy Spirit, even in some of the later confessions and creeds, is not unpacked as, as many as other uh, portions. And over the course of the centuries, the years, churches have understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit in different ways. And so there's some buzzwords, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some people say second blessing. 
Some people believe that the filling of the Holy Spirit or maybe the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they might think it's the same thing. They might think it's a different thing. But they might say once you become a Christian, you then have to wait for something else. The Holy Spirit is going to come later. You're saved now, but later the Holy Spirit will come or the Holy Spirit indwells you now, but later the Holy Spirit will fill you. That's why you're, uh, that's why you're so messed up right now. You just need that second filling, a momentous occasion where the Spirit comes over you in, in a powerful way. Um, and so because of those things, there's been lots of confusion. There's been lots of confusion because some churches would say the way that you know you got that, that filling, the way that you know you got that empowerment by the Spirit is an outward manifestation of a miraculous spiritual gift, mainly tongues, speaking in other languages or a heavenly language or both, depending on who's explaining it to you. Um, and that's the sign. That's how you know that the Holy Spirit is filling you, baptizing you, anointing you. Uh, the, the words are used sort of interchangeably in some places. So what I want to talk to you today about is not just to understand the Holy Spirit doctrinally better, but as an encouragement to you. The Holy Spirit doesn't get a lot of airtime, and people complain about this, but the Holy Spirit is a background player. I mean, He inspires Scripture, and He's He's promoting the Father and He's promoting the Son. And He's not self-promoting. Doesn't that match the humility? of The third person of the Trinity is the author of Scripture and, and He shows that humility and, and sort of being in the background. And so uh, do we have enough sermons on the Holy Spirit? Probably not. But if it seems like we emphasize Christ and His relationship to the Father, it's because that's what the Holy Spirit emphasizes in Scripture. But Holy, uh, Scripture is not... Uh, silent on the Holy Spirit. It does have some things to say about the Holy Spirit. And so this is what I want to commend to you. I want to talk about specifically the filling of the Holy Spirit and what that means for you. And what that means for you, the filling of the Holy Spirit, is to empower you to work for God. To empower you to do godly works. That's what the filling of the Spirit means. So what I'm going to do is sort of a machine gun, rapid through approach through Old Testament and then some verses in Acts to help drive that home. And then we're going to just hang out on one verse in Ephesians 5.18. You can, you can turn there now, uh, but I want you to try to track with this emphasis. When the Bible talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, even in the Old Testament, the focus is empowering, right? To bring power that otherwise you, you couldn't do that task unless the Holy Spirit empowered you to do what God is calling you to do. And you can hang out in the Old Testament and see this. The Holy Spirit is mentioned almost 400 times in the Old Testament. And generally the references are the Holy Spirit is God's working power. We're not even totally sure that the Spirit is a person until you get to the New Testament. Now, the Spirit is not a force. It's not an impersonal magic or feeling. It's not just a power. It's not just a way of calling God's power something. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. And we see that because verses that talk about the Holy Spirit having personal characteristics. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be sad. The Holy Spirit can be hurt. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit commands. The Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit is used on par with the Father and the Son, especially in that Trinitarian form, formula for baptism, right? We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the power of Him. No, the Holy Spirit. He's a person. Well, it's not just the power, but when you read especially the Old Testament, you see the power of God at work through the Spirit of God. 
In Ezekiel 37, you remember the valley of the dry bones? The spirit is the one that animates those dry bones to come to life. He's like a breath that comes and breathes life into these bones. Why? Because the spirit is the author of life. Psalm 104 tells us the spirit of God is the uh, creator of all of life. Every beast, everything that lives, the spirit created that life. And so he empowers life itself. But the Spirit's frequently used to empower people for service to God. Back when we went through uh, Exodus, there were a couple passages there where God commands the people to build the tent of meeting, and they're supposed to build the tent, build the ark, build the mercy seat that's on the ark, build the table, the furnishings, build the, uh, create the uh, priest's garments. Now, God didn't want them to just sort of slap that together with a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing, so he chose one man in particular, Bezalel, and filled them with the Holy Spirit to do crafty stuff. I mean, something that otherwise would seem pretty normal. The dude's in his garage putting the mercy seat together. I mean, you know, he's, he's carving it and stuff. But God wanted it a certain way. And this was to represent God's dwelling presence with his people. And so he empowered him not to do something that from the outside looks miraculous, but to do something that indeed was uh, powerful. We get that in Exodus 31, for example. You remember when Moses commissioned Joshua, the Bible tells us in Numbers 27 that the reason why they commissioned Joshua and gave Joshua some of Moses' authority because the Spirit was in Joshua. Why? Because Joshua was going to get to work using that authority to lead God's people. So the Spirit of God empowered him to do what? To do work. So whether the Spirit's empowering Bezalel to build the tent of meeting or empowering Joshua to lead God's people, when you read the book of Judges, you see this happening over and over. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. And because the Spirit of the Lord is on Othniel, he's able to defeat the king of Mesopotamia. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Gideon. Listen, sometimes the book of Judges, people say, well, you'll, you'll get the Spirit when you're really holy. Really? Because Gideon... <laughs> You read the book of Gideon, it's almost laughable that God would use such a man. And then right in that moment when you start feeling cocky about it, you realize we're like Gideon. You know, we're Gideon. And you get to Samson. And he's killing people. He's murderous. He, instead of pushing the enemies out, he marries them. He's, he's a woman chaser. He's not faithful to his friends. He kills innocent people for clothes because he lost a bet. But the Spirit of God rushed upon him to do the Lord's work. And even though Samson had bad motives, the Spirit of God wanted to get something done. So that's not the model. But what we see is the Spirit of God rushes on someone and they do something. And in Samson's case, unwittingly serving the Lord. And the text tells us that. Samson's parents were confused. Why is this happening? And they didn't know, the author tells us, that God was doing this to get his job done. So the Spirit of God clothed Gideon, it says. The Spirit of God was on Jephthah. I don't even want to talk about that dude's story. But to conquer the enemies. It's on Samson. Just before David's story gets started, two paragraphs right before he defeats Goliath, the passage tells us that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So now as you read that moment, all the story of David, all the conquest, all the great things he did for the Lord, starting with slaying the giant, it's because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. See? He's doing what he otherwise couldn't do because the Spirit of God is upon him. 
And it wasn't visible. There wasn't a glow. There wasn't a halo. There wasn't some stamp on his forehead. The author is telling us because the author knows. And so we see even in the Old Testament, it's about empowering God's people for God's work. Now, if you read the New Testament, you might think, well, isn't the filling of the Spirit always accompanied by something a little more miraculous? Healings, resurrections, speaking in tongues at least. Um, Well, in the beginning, yes. If you want to turn to Acts and go through quickly with me, you can, but it is going to be quick. But I want to give you several verses just following the filling of the Spirit through Acts. As Luke mentions the filling of the Spirit a lot. And then once you get out of Acts, you, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, once you get out of Acts, you really don't see that particular term. But it's all over the place in Acts. In chapter 2, verse 4, they break out speaking in tongues. They're filled with the Spirit and they're speaking in tongues, yes. But what is the content? We talk all day about, oh, they were speaking in tongues. Was it other angel? Was the angel language? Was it other people's language? Oh, it was other people's language. What is tongues? What's the nature of it? Should we still do it today? And we missed what they were saying. We talk so much about the language in which they were saying what they were saying, and we don't really talk that much about what they were saying in those other languages. And the text tells us what they were saying in those other languages. And they spoke those other languages so that the foreigners could understand what they were saying. And the hearer said they, they're speaking the mighty works of God. Luke tells us they were prophesying. And the point of the prophecy was to get the audience, the listeners, to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. They were preaching the gospel. And we say, oh, they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, they did speak in tongues, but the content was proclaiming the gospel. And the reason why they spoke in tongues is so the other person could understand it in that moment. That's not the only reason why tongues is there. We can cover that later. But they were preaching the gospel and they were filled to preach the gospel. And all these other fillings have nothing to do with tongues, but they do have to do with the ministry work of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit to preach to his persecutors. In chapter 4, down in 27 to 31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit to speak the Word of God with boldness. Not just the kind of boldness that it takes to finally talk to your friend about your testimony, but the kind of boldness it takes to talk to somebody about your testimony when you know they'll probably throw you in jail for it. That level of boldness, they were filled with the Spirit to proclaim the word of God boldly, even though they're going to get it. Chapter 7, down in verse 55, Stephen is preaching. He sees Jesus at the side of the Father. And Luke tells us he's filled with the Spirit to endure that execution as they drag him out of the city and stone him to death. He's filled with the Spirit to get there, to endure that. In fact, it's not always that level. In Acts chapter 6, when, when Stephen is gathered with six other guys to be the church's first deacons, essentially, you remember that? They said, here's a few requirements. Find men full of the Holy Spirit. To do what? To, to serve tables? Yeah. To help the widows. This church is arguing about which widows to feed and which ones not to. This is going to take some arguing. This is going to take settling down some quarrels. This is going to take some leadership. This is going to take some delegated authority. And they need to be men that are known to be men that are filled with the Spirit. So filling with this, being filled with the Spirit can be like a temporary thing, but it can also be a, a characteristic of somebody's life. Right? The church knows these, these guys are those kind of guys 
that they're empowered by God to do work. That's amazing. Even in mundane things, building a tent, making furniture for a temple, or helping widows get food, they're empowered by God to do it. That's awesome. In chapter 9, Saul, or Paul, he's being healed from his blindness, and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit to do what? To start his mission to the Gentiles. He's filled with the Spirit, just like David. Filled with the Spirit, and now he's going to get to work. It's about empowerment. It's not about signs or tongues. Chapter 13, Paul, again, he's filled with the Spirit when he's preaching the gospel to the proconsul, the, the Roman governor. He's preaching the gospel to the proconsul. Elemis, the quote-unquote magician, interrupts it. He doesn't want the proconsul to hear the gospel, and Paul, ter- Paul is filled with the Spirit and rebukes Elemis in such a way that the rebuke prompts the proconsul to believe the gospel. So he's filled with the Spirit to rebuke, yeah, but the result of the rebuke is the effective proclamation of God's word, that it took root in the proconsul's heart. Not because Paul was eloquent, not because Paul did the rebuke so precisely and pristinely, but because he was filled with the Spirit and the Spirit did something there that otherwise wouldn't happen. See. One more real quickly, also in chapter 13. Right at the end of chapter 13, the last verse, going into the first verse of chapter 14, the disciples are filled with the Spirit, uh, and they spoke in Iconium, they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Now it's easy to go, oh, they spoke in such a way. Would that they wrote a textbook on homiletics and preaching so that we can preach in that way. As many churches will have you believe, if you buy this book, if you take this program, if you go to this webinar, if you go to this conference, we will teach you how to grow your church, how we grew our church. If you paint by these numbers, this pastor over here figured it out. If you paint by these numbers and you preach in such a way, do ministry in such a way, great numbers will come. And what they're missing is the reason why they preached in such a way was not because they got it from a textbook and it's not because they painted by numbers. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you don't get that in a book. The Holy Spirit's filling empowers God's people to do things and see fruit happening that otherwise wouldn't happen if we were left to our own devices. So as you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, the, definitions, the definition fits consistently. That the filling, rushing upon, dwelling in, filling of the Spirit is empowerment for God's people to do God's work. These things can be extraordinary things, like mass numbers of people coming to Christ in one shot. Or they could be a little more mundane seeming, like building furniture or serving tables. And I want you to see that in Ephesians 5. So let's turn to Ephesians 5. One verse there is a very popular verse that talks about the filling of the Spirit. I'll say this, I think other verses describe the filling of the Spirit without using the Word, but this one uses the Word. Ephesians 5.18, a passage that many of us know, we're familiar with, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, extreme self-indulgence. But be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, a verse where maybe for many the emphasis is on drinking and drunkenness. 
and a verse to use to talk about drinking beyond a certain limit is a sin. And that's true, but that's not the point. The point that he's getting at is uh, it's not just about not being a drunk. But rather than being dependent on alcohol, to be dependent on the spirit. Where alcohol, you notice this contrast that he's using, where alcohol dulls your senses, slows your brain, uh, alters your behavior for the worse. The Holy Spirit enlivens you, makes you sober-minded, and alters your behavior for the better, for godliness. And so it's not just stop doing this, but what should you be doing? Many non-believers have kicked the habit of drinking. They can kick all kinds of habits, but they're not filled with the Spirit. And the point is not to worship God by stamping out sins in your life that are getting in your way. That might get you fired. They're making you uncomfortable. Your family put you in a corner and said, hey, we're doing an intervention. Now that, that's all great and dandy, but that's, that's not what Paul is after here. What he's after is a filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit will prompt you to do what otherwise you wouldn't do, just like alcohol will make you say things and do things that in your normal self you probably wouldn't do. That's the parallel. And so rather than debauchery, extreme self-indulgence, feeding yourself for what you want, dulling your senses because you don't want to think about pain or you don't want to think about life or whatever drunkenness might entail, and debauchery, he wants you to go all in on the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit and I think maybe for some of us, that sounds so Pentecostal or something. And if we're not Pentecostal, we're just kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with that. But it's a command. I don't think one denomination should snatch a term and make it theirs. But if it's in the Bible, we should pursue it. And so this is how we stamp out sin. This is how we please God. This is how we progress in our faith. And it's how we do godly work. The filling of the Spirit empowers us to do godly work in two ways. Here's two ways. The first is to grow in holiness. I mean, the first one is more about uh, being more than it is doing. What you're like that produces the doing that you do. Growing in holiness. You see that in verses 15, uh, leading up to verse 18 in chapter 5 here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's throwing drunkenness in there as an example of how the days are evil. But the passage isn't about alcohol. It's about all the things we're surrounded by that suck us into the vacuum of not serving God, but be wise, that's foolish, and that's evil. Be wise. Be filled with the Spirit to not be sucked into that. That's what he's on about. Then if you look even further from verse 17, this is about walking in the newness of life. No, no longer walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They've become callous, verse 19. But that's not how you learn Christ. You learned Christ, and so verse 22, you can put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, 
How are we created in the likeness of God? You remember in Genesis, as creation is about to start, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God breathes life into man. The Spirit of God stamps that image on man. And so Paul's saying, as we're recreated, the same thing. The Spirit is the one that enlivens it. The Spirit is the one that makes it possible. And so Paul is not saying, what you need is a seven-step program. What you need is to just have more accountability partners. Hey, those things are good tools, but the power is not in those tools. The power is in the Holy Spirit filling you to do what otherwise you could not do. For some of us, the first step we need to take is admitting to the Lord that we can't do it and asking Him for help and moving out of the immature praying that says, sorry God for last week, I'll do better this week. That's still, you're on like cheap milk with that. The Father provides the Holy Spirit to do what we otherwise could not do or would not do and one of the effects of it is joy. He says in verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 19, what does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart with your Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing there the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit and that it involves joy and gladness. For some of us, that might sound a little mundane, but for some of us, that's something we've been asking for for a long time. A joy that you feel is missing in your life, a gladness that you feel is missing in your life. You don't just need a vacation or a holiday. You don't need the sun to come back. You need the filling of the Spirit. And then you see that the filling of the Spirit affects other people. It helps you grow in godliness and holiness. That's the first way, but it helps you help others grow in holiness. That's the second way. Because you see 19 to 21 involves others. You're addressing one another. You're not just singing by yourself. You're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the, heart, uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. So it involves this one anotherness. You sing to each other. We build each other up in this gladness and in this singing, in this making melody but our hearts are in it. We're not just checking singing off a box, but our hearts are in it. We're into it. We love it. We revel in it. We rejoice in it because we're glad. We're joyful. Not because of circumstances, but because something happened on the inside, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you see in verse 20, giving thanks for everything to God in the name of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, comma, Submitting to one another. Well, that takes that takes filling with the spirit. Who wants to submit to anybody? How many of us as parents? I'm preaching against myself here. I mean, how many of us just say obey because the Bible says obey? How many of us help our kids understand you can't obey? You need the filling of the spirit to do it. Because. That's hard work, submitting in the roles in which you're supposed to submit. Well, that's more obvious 
But if you back up, just about the singing and addressing one another in psalms, have you ever thought you need the empowering of the Holy Spirit? The same power that prompted David to slay Goliath. That same power that caused thousands of people to respond to the gospel and believe in one sermon. That that same power is what you need to walk in here on a Sunday morning and sing with a glad heart. You need the Spirit's filling to do that. That's the effect of it. That's how it spills over. It's not about doing miracles. It's not about anything flashy. A lot of it we'll recognize in retrospect. But the filling of the Spirit is here to get us to do what we otherwise would not be able to do. And that's in the works of sanctification, growing in holiness, and service, helping other people grow in holiness. The Holy Spirit empowers us for sanctification and for service. So really quickly, how we live in light of this. It's continual. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It could be translated, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It keeps happening. It's not a one-time thing. It's not, oh, I got saved, but I'm hoping for the filling to to kick in one day. Uh, It's continual. And we keep pressing after it. And we should seek it because it's a command. If it weren't a command, it'd be like, all right, I wonder when it's going to come to me. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something you should be seeking and striving after. But you should also trust God for it. Because it doesn't say, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, but be filled. Isn't that strange? And don't we see this so often in Scripture, that tension between the command to pursue God and the realization that I can't pursue God, He has to pursue me. The works that I'm supposed to be doing are really the works that He's doing through me. Also, on the one hand, I'm commanded to do it. I'm supposed to put effort. I'm supposed to strive. But on the other hand, I realize it's not my striving and my effort it's more receptive. It's be filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it's opening ourselves up for God to continue to do this work in us. And that's a strange tension that's all over Scripture, but it's scriptural. And I think on the one hand, we should be prompted and motivated to seek for it, but on the other hand, we should recognize that what we're doing is more dependence than it is manufacturing fruit. We're depending on God to do it and recognizing that we can't on our own. We can't just muscle it up. We can't just grind it out, you know, but that'll fail over time. But if we depend on him, lean on him, I don't know about you, but if I need him more, I'm going to read the Bible more. If I need him more, I'm going to pray more. If I need him less, I pray less and read less. It's just how it works. So this should prompt and motivate us to seek the filling of the Lord by delighting in His Word, reading it, listening to His Word. We think too much of the Holy Spirit's activity as subjective. I got a feeling. That must have been the Holy Spirit. I had a dream last night. That must have been the Holy Spirit. I don't know what came over me. I just shared the gospel. That must have been the Holy Spirit. Yeah, probably. But if you open the Bible and read a line, that was the Holy Spirit. Because he bore the authors along and put some objective things down on paper that you don't have to guess. What is the Holy Spirit thinking right now? That, that's it. Read it. Engage in it. Love it. Delight in it. Learn it. And that keeps you in step with the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. He wrote it. So we push and we, we, we strive after it, but we also trust. It is a passive aspect where we trust God to keep doing something in our lives and we ask him for it. Even the small things, 
can be difficult things in your life, whether it's stopping sin or starting to do a good habit, those might seem small, but we need empowering to do those things. And so we lean on Him for it. We ask Him for it. And God doesn't expect you to do this alone. That's the beautiful truth of it. The feeling of the Spirit is, is God's promise to do in you what is necessary to do the things that He's asking you to do. And so as a perfect father, he doesn't just ask you to do something and he sits back with his arms folded waiting to see if you can perform, but he does precisely what's necessary in your life to do the doing. That is awesome. None of us is striving after this on our own or by ourselves and on our own energy, but we trust God for it and he's a faithful God to do it. Finally, we should try to live the kind of lives that require big empowerment. You know, if, if we're sort of idle and we really don't do anything for God that stretches us, that, that, that prompts us and reminds us that we need God to do it, what's the feeling of the Spirit for? We're just doing what everybody could do. But if we stretch a little bit, if we do bigger things, if we share the gospel as shy as we might be, as scared and nervous as we might be, we still share the gospel. See, that's, that's the feeling of the Spirit is required for that. So as you're making your way to that coffee shop to talk to that person. You're nervous, you're sweating, you're texting people to pray for you, you're depending on God to do something because I'm not an evangelist, I'm not an evangelist. It's great, God's going to use you probably more than the evangelist that you're thinking of in that moment. Make big changes for the Lord, but make those changes not by promising to journal through it throughout the year and putting a, a refrigerator sticker on you know, to remind you to do it. Those, those, those are helps. That's not empowerment. Lean on God for it. Pray to God for it and ask him to do big things through you that you otherwise wouldn't do. If you feel small, that's great. That's right where God wants you. God used the small guy, David. God used the murder guy, Moses. God used terrible people in the book of Judges. But our advantage is we can, in Christ, approach God. Uh, Just before we go to uh, open for questions, I want you to understand that the filling of the Spirit is Christ's work in you so that when Christ promises believers, those who place their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, they've called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus doesn't go, hey, see you later. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to do something else. When he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches and you can't do anything apart from me, what he's saying is, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, you're united to me. So that our union with Christ is through the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is Jesus getting to work in your life. So if you want more Jesus, you want more Holy Spirit. And if you want more Holy Spirit, you're not waiting for an angelic language. What you're waiting for, what you're wanting, what you're asking Him for, is empowerment to do what Scripture plainly tells you you should be doing and to help you to stop doing the things that Scripture plainly tells you you shouldn't be doing those things. Why? Because that grieves the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit filling you. Aim for that. And if we trust Christ for it, he will do it and make us more than what we could have been aside from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to take a few moments here to see if there are any questions because there's so many things that I didn't touch. There are a couple things that I kind of flicked and then left uh, because uh, for time. But I just want to take a few minutes. If you have a question, you can raise your hand. Uh, or you can uh, send in a text, uh, use the phone number on the back of the, of the bulletin. Um, and I'll just, I'll just wait up here uh, for uh, about 30 minutes. I'm going to just wait up here, stand. <laughs> now.
No. And if there's no, no questions, we, that's, that's fine. We can, we can pray and then close uh, in a song. But I just recognize that so many of us have so many different backgrounds regarding the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm for sure this week going to look back on the sermon, think about it, and go, man, why, I didn't cover that. why didn't I cover that? I don't know. Um, um, I just want to leave a, a couple minutes maybe just to see if anyone has anything that you'd like me to press in further, uh, a web or a knot to try to untangle. Mm. Uh, I, I, yeah, so the question is, uh, grieving the Holy Spirit, is that one of the unforgivable sins? So I'll say no to that. I think in context what Paul is talking, he's talking to Christians, and it's Christian sin. Christians, um, we're always in that fight between putting on Christ and putting off the flesh, and we do fleshly things sometimes, but those things grieve the Spirit. Uh, and Paul, by telling his audience, don't grieve the Spirit, there's still a chance for them, right? There's still a way for them to con- grow in not grieving the Spirit and, and do the things that they should be doing. Whereas when Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Spirit, he's talking about uh, there's no way back. There, there's no forgiveness left for a person who, who, who's guilty of that breach. Um, and that, that's obviously a really big topic. My understanding of the blasphemy of the Spirit is rejecting the clear ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know the gospel is true. The Holy Spirit is revealing to you the gospel is true, and you still reject it. There's no forgiveness for that person. And I think something snaps. God is not obligated to continue to pursue everybody. And so as Jesus teaches the disciples, some people, they're going to turn on you, bite at you. Forget it. Just shake the dust off your sandals uh, and, and continue to walk. And that, that's modeling what God does sometimes. That's God's prerogative to do that, and I don't know if we can, with our eyes, see when someone's committed the unforgivable sin, but there are some people that I think go to a point where there's no turning back. And I think Jesus was warning his audience that if I'm here doing live miracles and you still don't believe you're, you, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is so obvious, pointing to me as the Savior, and you still reject it, well, how could there be forgiveness anywhere else if you reject Christ uh, resolutely? Um, I think that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's a good question. Uh, let's go Dave, and then we'll go Dave. Yeah, Pastor, you, you touched on this briefly, uh, about how the Spirit speaks to people. Yeah. And I know, like, for me, it's not that I hear an audible voice, but sometimes I just get thought patterns or words and thoughts that say, yeah. Right. Oh man, if we if any of us see a chocolate cake down there, we're gonna be like, "Well, better eat it." Um, so the question is basically, uh, what do we do with audible testimonies that I heard an audible voice or something like that? Um, yeah. Uh, th- this is my position. You know, there's not an official statement from the church. This is Pastor Lucas talking. Um, my position on that is uh, I, I can't prove from Scripture that there's no way anyone can hear something. I, I think God, He's done it in Scripture. I don't see a clear uh, verse that says He promises to never do that again. Um, I think it's one of those things we always have to weigh and test with Scripture. Uh, 
and only cling to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. And some of that can be evil. Um, I have a, uh, a friend who suffered three or so miscarriages and somebody told the, them on their fourth, uh, fourth pregnancy, the Lord told me, this is it. And she miscarried. So in the Old Testament, that guy would be dragged out of town and stoned to death for being a false prophet. So um, is it possible? It's possible, I think. But I'm very skeptical. I don't think we need it. I think Scripture is sufficient. Um, I don't think we need verbal promptings to do normal things like encourage somebody. But uh, I also have heard testimonies where I got this word. I didn't understand. It was so specific to the detail. There's no other way I could know it. And those are situations where I'm like, hey, I'm not that person. I don't know what they were doing. But I would be hesitant for a church to start building an entire culture on this sort of special thing. And Scripture's not enough. We need to kind of hear words. I'd be real uh, hesitant to allow the church to kind of go in that direction. Uh, we had Dave Schultz here. In the uh, doesn't John chapter 1 say that So the three are active there, right? Um, the Father is, is creating. Let us make man uh, in our image. The debate there is, is he talking us? Is he using like royal language as one option? Another option is us the divine council, including the angels? Or the third option is that sort of a, a hint. This doesn't spell out the Trinity, but a hint that the Trinity is active in creation. I lean toward the third one um, because I think the royal language thing has been disproven in scholarship. And uh, when he says to the angels, let us make, I don't see the angels as active in making man in their image, as God's image. Uh, possible interpretation, but I don't, I don't buy it. But, I, but the Spirit is there hovering at creation, not just because he's hanging out watching, but he's involved and he kind of gets things started, so to speak. If that makes sense. Werner? Yes. Yes. Right. No, I, I understand. So, so the question basically is, what do you do when the Spirit is prompting you, as Werner's saying, telling you, hey, go witness to this neighbor. It's telling you to do something that's scriptural. It's not adding to scripture like, hey, here's this new revelation that pastors would preach. I get that. I think there are different ways to understand that. One is, um, I think sometimes we're not sure how to discern between my own thoughts, my own conviction in my mind about what I should do with that neighbor and the Spirit prompting me. But I think the Spirit uses all those things anyway. And God is over everything anyway. The Proverbs tell us uh, the, 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 uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, right? So that means like if you roll dice today after fellowship meal, you go home and you play Monopoly and you roll the dice, the number that came up right there, God did that. that that's how pervasive his sovereignty is. 
So did, was it my thought? Was it my thinking? Was it a picture that reminded me? Did, did something come up on my phone and it prompted me? Or do I just feel this like burning thing? Like I can't shake off any other thought. I've got to go do this thing. And I think that happens for Christians. I just would probably stop shy of saying that it was audible, verbal. I could have written it down. But, but just the Lord prompted me. I think that's totally fine. However he prompted me, my thoughts, my conviction, the sermon I heard last week uh, motivating me. I can't shake this person from my mind. I keep praying for them. Um, I woke up at 2.30 in the morning and I just felt prompted to pray for somebody and then you find out later that person was going through something at that time. I don't don't think that's Pentecostal. I just think that God does what he wants and he prompts things. Where we have to be careful is where things start getting verbal and you can write things down and, and put it in the back of your Bible and go, you have Revelation and then you've got... Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, and praise God for you responding to that. I think probably a lot of us in here have testimonies where we felt prompting. Our, our, we're so non-Pentecostal sometimes we just explain it away and we miss opportunities where it's like, who cares what you call it? Go, it's never wrong to talk to someone about the gospel. Go, go do it. Or if you want to call it a prompting or a filling of the Spirit. Um, but if it's about going about the business of the Lord's work, we should, we should do it. Okay. Uh, maybe one more? Yeah. Winder? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, so David, obviously, yeah, so David is writing Psalm 51. You can turn there if you want to. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. He's on the out with the, the Lord. And so it's a prayer of, of confession. Uh, and then, uh, what verse is it, Winder? Verse 11, yeah, so right after the creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, uh, small s is probably faithful. And then verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Um, I've heard that explained a couple, a couple of ways. One is he's talking about that anointing for kingship uh, because Saul was ousted when he failed and he doesn't want to be ousted as he fails for that kingly office. Uh, and it does, uh, it does match other scripture verses where the Spirit rushes upon someone for an office or for a, sp- a particular task, whether it's making a, a tent um, or a priest or, in his case, a king. So that's one way to explain it. Another way is a more general way of just saying, in the Old Testament, the Spirit, it, was, it, it seems like a little more come and go. The Spirit didn't rush upon every person uh, that served the Lord, and it didn't necessarily stay with Bezalel. It, the Spirit filled Bezalel to do that task, and maybe later it wasn't. Um, and so we'd see even in the New Testament, it's a continual thing, but the difference is in the New Covenant, because of our union with Christ, it's permanent. Versus in the Old Testament, scholars debate about how permanent was it, what was that, it's just not as clear, but we know in the New Testament, uh, it's a permanent thing. But I think at the end of the day, what, what David is asking for is forgiveness. I don't want to be on the out with you. I want to be in the in. And, and I need you to not take away from me what you've 
done for me, whether it's specifically the kingly thing or just being in God's covenant. Uh, if, that, if that helps, that makes sense. Okay, uh, some of us are probably enjoying this and others are like, I want to see if the chocolate cake is down there. <laughs> so, um, we do have, we, we did get some texted questions. I'll, I'll consider those as I uh, post the, the growth group questions. And Tuesday night uh, here, another group that meets, uh, are you guys on this week at Palatine? Okay, at the Zerkowski's house. Uh, we go through questions and we talk about this stuff. And so if you want to learn more, uh, please uh, come, come on out to growth group and we'll do that together. I'm going to close in prayer, not only for the service, but for the food, uh, so that when we get down there, we can, we can get to it. Um, and then we'll wait for, um, for the signal. Uh, for, us to, for us to go down and be ready. And uh, just as a reminder, Gordon's gracious enough to share with us some updates on his ministry. I think you're going to be blessed by that update. But let's, let's, uh, let's stand together. We're going to close in a song, and then I'll come up and I'll pray for us.